This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber, and Amazon. I'll never forget my first time going to T-Wall back in, probably, I want to say it was 2012. We were living in Nashville, went down right after New Year's, and it was my first experience being around a lot of people who being afraid was okay, and everyone was so supportive in verbiage and just the energy, and that energy spreads. And just feeling accepted. In 2011, I was in a pretty bad climbing accident and had to get reconstructive facial surgery. And at that time, I was having anxiety attacks almost every time climbing, even on top rope. So I didn't want to go and went anyway. And just that energy, we can all feel it. And I think that that needs to be encouraged and accepted more often of everyone experiences trauma so differently and we all have it and it will forever change us. And instead of putting people down for not doing the scary route, understanding that them maybe not doing that or not finishing a route is the healthiest thing for them in that moment. And just be more humanistic. Kids have a lot of questions when someone in their family is sick. But when you don't know to ask, certain things become the norm. In our parents' generation, bipolar disorder wasn't as widely talked about, nor given the compassionate treatment it deserves. Becca is changing that. 
Becca grew up with a dad who had bipolar disorder. She herself has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and her research exploring the effects of climbing on women with mental illness and the ways it can be used to increase self-efficacy, resiliency, and locus of control is currently under academic review. So my name's uh, Becca Wallingford. I'm a small girl from Appalachia who loves to get to know people in their heart. I love rock climbing for the things that it does for all of us. I'm originally from Maysville, Kentucky, really small town about an hour and a half north of the Red. I'm the seventh generation of my family born there. And so I grew up in the house that my grandma was born in. Funny enough, I found out, this is random, um, my great-grandmother was actually born in the Kmore mine. And if you go the, to the new now, like you'll see the, the remains of that when you go down to that climbing area. And I guided there with Jim Taylor for three years and so lived in the new for three years. Now I live in Lander, Wyoming. And yeah, I've been here on and off for about 10 years, permanently for about five. During the time, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school to get my master's in social work at University of Wyoming, which was probably the best decision I've made in my life. Not only for job aspects of it, but also just like personal growth and figuring things out, because my whole goal within it was how do we integrate mental well-being and understanding mental illness within the climbing community and the climbing realm. So I ended up doing a qualitative study on uh, women living with mental illness who are rock climbers and was able to have these very impactful, wonderful, inspirational conversations uh, with nine women. And from that, I also grew to realize part of my own journey was going back in time and realizing my own history with trauma and then my own history with my own serious mental illness. Okay, I'm on time. You are listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's funny, sounds so uncomfortable. By me. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. Easy cheesy. Hey, a quick heads up. This episode discusses bipolar disorder and abuse. Reach out for support if you're struggling with mental illness. I was talking to my mom earlier today about a few things. Because I went through a lot of stuff with my dad. And, you know, you don't want to shame your family. And she was like, you know, you can't protect him forever. So I feel better now talking about that kind of stuff. This is the first time that I'm like exposing my experience. And so I may cry a bit. Whew, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type one at the age of 12, put on medication at the age of 15. 
after a pretty intense intervention with my family. And then I hid it for a long time. The only people that knew were my family members and very, very close friends. Up until about three years ago, I wanna say, or maybe four years ago, I would go to extreme lengths to hide medication that I was taking, to make excuses for acting particular ways. And it's interesting, a podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression, John Moe, the host of that podcast, and makeitokay.org really started me on my journey of saying, who I am is not somebody to be ashamed of, and people need to know the truth. Can any of you recognize what stigma towards mental illness looks like? Have you caught yourself in a moment of maybe unconscious bias? Because I have. Consider this riddle. A man takes his son's scheme, but is killed in an avalanche. The avalanche also badly injures his son. He's then taken to the hospital, but upon seeing him, the surgeon says, I can't operate, he's my son. How is this possible? This question was asked as a part of a gender study on unconscious bias by a College of Arts and Science psychology professor. The study found that 15% had the correct answer, which revealed a deeply held bias in the participant group but few of these people would likely be considered sexist. It's a great example of our unconscious bias. We're not always aware of the factors that influence us, but our ideologies and subsequent thoughts and actions are swayed by unconscious bias every day. Have you ever distanced yourself from someone after learning they have a mental illness or maybe been afraid to say something for fear of their reaction? Do some mental illnesses feel scary to you? Educating ourselves on mental illness and its impact, talking openly with those affected, and sharing knowledge with others can help overcome the stigma. Even since then, you know, it's been ups and downs, right? Vulnerability is so hard, um, and feeling safe with people is so hard. I've had multiple experiences with bosses or even like mental health professionals where I say, okay, do you think that this is all right to share? And I had a boss that said, really glad that you told me, don't tell anyone else. Um, Because as a climbing guide, people won't trust you. And then I had a therapist tell me that it was best if I kept these things to myself. And I've been asked quite a bit once I've become more open, like, why do you think that people need to know? And I try at least to only share it when it's purposeful. Right? I'm not just going to go in and open book for folks. Um, and I think that right now is a time, it's purposeful. Like We need to normalize this and understand that within these complicated, serious mental illnesses, we can lead lives full of love and community and have healthy relationships and be able to do the work. And along with that, it's also important as climbers to be able to be open so that you can tell your partner, hey, like, if I go into a panic attack, here are some things that help me because we're not on our own. And our decisions, our actions, our emotional well-being affects other people that we're with in these extreme environments. And by normalizing that, we can talk about it more and be able to communicate better with the people around us so that we're healthier and they also feel supported.
My mom's a school psychologist, and so I grew up in a home where feelings were very accepted. She is my number one, my end-all, be-all. She is it. And youngest of three sisters. I love them. They're my best friends. They're also my biggest support. And then I grew up in the house that my grandma was born in, like in a very small town, uh, 7,000 people, so no, no. But everyone knew my grandparents. We are sitting on couches that came from my grandma's house. And I was told stories of ghost horses that run around and grew up on a farm. But within that is kind of a darker side of my dad who I should start with, now I have forgiven. We are, we're doing well. Um, he's 70 now, and he finally will admit he thinks he has undiagnosed bipolar disorder. My dad was hard, um, emotionally abusive, physically abusive. He was not somebody who felt a lot. He was not someone who particularly wanted to spend time with kids. Looking back now, when he did spend time with my sisters and I, in the happy times, it was clearly manic. Um, but I mean, those times were great, but it still makes it hard when you grow up in a house where you're walking on eggshells all the time. Like, you know, every morning we would make our breakfast with the lights off because we'd be screaming at my mom in the bathroom. Man, but like you were talking about resiliency and I will say, now looking back on that and understanding I had open wounds that going through social work opened it up even more, which makes camping in Vitavu and shutting off your phone when you're in grad school even that much more important because um, you're processing so many things. But when I look at him now as not just my dad, but a person and realize the amount of things that he's gone through and understanding that he grew up in an abusive home and his trauma affected the way that he raised us and he, like the stigma of mental illness, made it so he never got help. And that goes back to the whole point. It doesn't just affect us, like it affects our kids, it affects our loved ones. And then that goes back to a fantastic study done with that identified that connectedness is the number one predictor for psychological resiliency. And so moving forward, and one of the main reasons I reached out to you was I was thinking about like, well, what if someone like my dad, a tough guy from Appalachia, what would it take for him to go see a therapist, you know? It's 2023 and Gen Zs are astronomically changing the conversation about mental health. As the generation to grow up in the first all digital era, Gen Zers are on track to be one of the most educated, racially and ethnically diverse generations. Though burdened by small things like a global pandemic, concerns about climate change, increase in gun violence and an overall uncertainty of access to healthcare, government and finances. So is Gen Z actually more depressed than other generations? It actually comes down to a study conducted by the APA that found that Gen Z is significantly more likely than any previous generation to seek help for mental health conditions. It's fair to assume that they deal with less stigma compared to previous generations, but still experience it related to mental health, current world issues, and their communities. But before Gen Z, there's a whole generational cohort comprised of adults between their late 50s 
and early to mid-70s. Many of them experienced major historical impacts, like post-war. And the overall concept of mental health during this coming of age often came in the limited context of mental institution. With insufficient resources, shame and derogatory labels filled the vacuum instead, resulting in a skeptical and dismissive approach toward treatment. Of note, generations are socially constructed, and the specific details of each demographic are established over time by both expert and public opinion. People who fall into the category of Becca's father's age face a significant learning curve, and growing up, likely didn't have the same support. Becca was diagnosed with bipolar disorder during a time when more resources were widely available to her as a young adult. We have to keep that in mind, that this information just didn't exist in the same context that it does today. And also understand that while things can be the reason, they don't always get to be our excuse. But now looking at him as not just my dad, but a human, and understanding the amount of things that he's gone through, um, of his sister dying of walking pneumonia, and then him being in an accident and having to get brain surgery. And so part of my dad, we're now realizing part of my dad's frontal lobe was removed. Or part of his stigma with mental illness was because he saw his mom who had pretty severe bipolar disorder. She suffered a lot and went through what now we would consider a psychotic break. And so he saw that happen. He experienced abuse from her, but he doesn't remember a lot of these things. He totally dissociated a lot of them. And last year, he apologized. He told me he was really proud of me, of being open about having bipolar disorder with my friends. And I said, Dad, do you remember what you said to me when I got on medication? You said that that was the greatest weakness to be put on meds. And he was sitting on his couch and he said, I'm, I'm so sorry. And hearing that was just like, in Appalachia, your family, no matter what, you do anything and everything to protect your family. And just that experience of feeling heard, feeling validated by someone who for so many years felt like this big scary bear was so incredibly powerful. So I still feel like I would do anything for my family and I, God, I love them. But it was hard for a while, probably like five years between the last time I experienced physical abuse and seeing that change and being like, okay, you know, you put somebody into one category of like this evil person because that's easy. And then realizing how complicated they are and then forgiveness. But once you get there, it's like, you feel like you can take a deep breath for the first time. Becca talked about putting people into the bad guy category, which is often how mental illness gets portrayed in the media. Studies consistently show that the dominant representation in media and entertainment miss the mark on mental health by depicting overwhelmingly dramatic images of mental illness that dangerously hyperbolize unpredictability and criminality. There are two common types of stigmatization in media, social and self, which is when those with a mental health disorder perceive public stigma and then internalize it. People don't realize the amount of work that goes into living with a mental illness. And like you mentioned, it's a part of you, but it's also work. You are every day, you're asking yourself consistently, like, am I being normal? Like, am I acting? quote unquote crazy. And I believe that in our tight-knit community of climbing, we have such an opportunity to take a small step in understanding each other. 
You know, one in five people in the United States will experience some sort of mental illness in their lifetime. And hiding it is not helpful for anyone. For the loved ones that are living with that person, because they also need support. Um, for the person going through it. And then also, like as mentioned, like the climbing partners that need to understand like, okay, these are the things that are helpful. This is not helpful. Um, and there's no reason to hide it anymore, I think. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. Patagonia introduces its newest podcast, Patagonia Stories. In each episode, they'll explore how we gather knowledge and ask questions about our relationship to each other and the natural world. It was just like one of those cartoons where the light bulb goes off. I thought, oh my God, plants aren't just takers, they're also givers. Humans have gotten it wrong so many times. You know, why should we assume that we're getting it right this time? I was sentenced to life with the possibility of both. I used to look outside and I would see all of the birds line up in the morning. And that almost kind of became a ritual for me, some kind of way to feel the harmony of nature and the flow. Something that's often thrown around as a cliche in the climbing world is you have the other person's life in your hands. It's not really what you're thinking about most of the time, but you definitely have someone's well-being in your hands. Questions like, how do lessons get passed down through generations? What barriers prevent us from acquiring natural wisdom? And how can we adapt in the face of a rapidly changing climate? Tune in for a new episode every Thursday. That's wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Doesn't this music just scream quintessential podcast ad? I love it. all too common that mental health and mental illness get used interchangeably, as if they mean the same thing. But not everyone will experience mental illness in their lifetime. We all have mental health, and it exists on a spectrum. And while good mental health often gets associated with being happy, it's not entirely accurate. And likewise, a period of feeling mentally unwell doesn't mean that you have a mental illness. Ultimately, these are conversations that will impact all of us. In Becca's research, her job as a social worker, and her own mental health journey, she answers the question of what we, as a communal group, can do in support of one another. And I would say the biggest thing is communal support in ways of conversations. So instead of at a crag when somebody is getting afraid or showing emotion, not particularly looking at that as like they're being so weak right now or they can't handle it because you have no idea the trauma that that person has gone through. Especially with trauma, we experience it in our brainstem and decision-making pieces in our cortex. So a lot of times that individual doesn't even know what's going on. I think just changing the conversation to be more understanding of like, we all get afraid and that's okay. You know, our fight, flight, freeze response is integrated into who we become. So understanding behaviors and this realization of when I'm in certain environments, that's why I react this way. And understanding the connection is so refreshing because our brainstem isn't always connecting to our decision making. And people will say, well, why are you having this anxiety attack? 
and you feel helpless when you're saying, I don't, I don't know. What's your triggers? I don't know. That realization that like, that's like part of how we work through it. It's all about like recognizing. And then instead of always going to the root of it, just working on the coping skills. And that's where like going back with working with climbing partners comes in as well. And then people don't realize folks that are living with mental illnesses, if they're on medications, those medications also have severe side effects, a lot of them. And so if you're on a big mission, like for instance, Last year we went out for a day mission into the winds and did brown cow. Your partners need to know if the medication that you're on makes you extra thirsty or if it gives you tremors or all of these things like physical things that the people that you're out there with need to know to keep you both safe. In 2021, a climbing party of three with the intention to summit Dalagiri, a 26,000 peak in Nepal, abandoned their expedition to scale the unclimbed Northwest Ridge when a team member had a change of heart. It was later diagnosed as an episode of mania and depression, a symptom of bipolar disorder. This sport is too dangerous to have mental insecurity, especially at altitude, was written by his former partners in a joint statement to the New York Times. I think most of us would make the same call had it been any of us sitting at base camp with a broken bone. But as former climber Corey Richards mused, because mental wellness is a topic of the mind and unseen except through behavior, it's nearly incomprehensible for people to apply the same logic and objectivity to it. I can't demand the world understand my experience, but I can ask that they believe it's true. There are no simple answers or easy paths when it comes to dealing with the life of highs and lows that mental illness can bring. There will be equal parts, difficult days, and decisions. It also doesn't mean that folks should stop living their lives either, because a mental condition doesn't have to mean a life sentence of suffering. And individuals discover that stability is unique to their experience. Same as in climbing, each person has to find their own way to get to the top. And everybody's summit might look a little different. Things have changed since Becca's dad grew up. The conversations taking place at the intersection of mental health and mental illness are changing the way we collectively see disorders. And women like Becca are helping make that change happen. We brought out a group from Omaha, Nebraska, a nonprofit, formerly called the Buford Foundation. And this year and 2019, they had two transgender folks and hearing the discussions that they were having with their fellow participants of, I would prefer this pronoun. If you forget, that's okay. And the participants asking, okay, well, let me know so I can fix it. And, you know, it's a scholarship-based program. It's so amazing. Most of the young people are coming from, like, lower socioeconomic class across all religions, ethnicities, and just hearing those conversations and, like, working at the elementary and middle school and the conversations that the young people are having, it's the most inspiring thing to see, like, okay, this is where we're headed. And that brings us back to, like, climbing community. We can jump on that bandwagon and take it. And we already are, I believe. But there's a large piece of our community, I think, that are resistant to that change. But spend a week in a middle school, man. <laughs> and they're building their resiliency every day. And I think that that's a big thing to always remember. Resiliency is not a trait. It's a flow. So there are certain days that your resiliency is so high and there are other days where you feel like you can't handle. And that 
is no detriment to your personal traits. Like we work on it. It's something we work on constantly. But then when you listen to people's stories and dive a little deeper, you realize like the ability to bounce back, what does that mean? What does that look like? Is bouncing back, going climbing, jumping back on the horse, quote unquote, or is that taking a day to say, you know, I'm gonna watch eight episodes of Shit's Creek today, because that can also be bouncing back, you know? Resiliency is a lot about forgiveness of what's good for me today, and it's gonna look different. Climbing builds resiliency, self-determination, an internal locus of control in so many different facets, right? And so I had multiple themes within this. It was a woman's background with trauma, which all nine had backgrounds with pretty severe trauma, whether acute or complex. And what climbing did for them in building resiliency is taking back control in the vertical realm, uh, a phenomenological study on female rock climbers living with mental illness. And that control, physical control, mental control, building coping skills, the resiliency that's built by literally us falling all the time. And being able to openly talk about failure with other climbers and normalizing failure was the biggest. It was so cool. These conversations were so inspiring in that way. Um, I'm just gonna read a quick quote from them. When I was going through the worst moments of my life, climbing made me realize that I can take control. It's hard, it sucks, and it's not gonna happen overnight, but I can do it. And that, I think, sums up what climbing can do for us. And it summed it up for me as well, of like my personal experience with climbing and the ebbing and the flowing of expectations and then forgiving ourselves for not fulfilling our project. Climbing isn't always the answer, and there are days that climbing is gonna help, and there are days that climbing isn't, but the consistent, I guess, answer is that at the end of the day, we are growing through not just the act of climbing, but the people around us as well. Whew. Barely cried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. How are you feeling? I'm good. Yeah. This was not dark. I was worried about going into a dark hole and I, I think now it's like happy to <laughs> You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. I love James Baldwin for someone being a person of color, also a gay man in that time and an influential person and not willing to back off when the social justice causes were saying, well, you're too much. And he wrote in an article for Esquire uh, when he was living in France, hope is invented every day. And on my darkest days, if I was just like, I can't get out of bed, be like, remember, hope is invented every day. And whatever hope looks like for you today, that's okay. So hope could be just like taking a shower.